I am your adversary. It's Nescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library with a few pit stops along the way. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, we rank them. That is pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. And I am Emmy Zero, the Gorgonzola Goblin. You're here to, to terrorize your shrine. Yep, that's right. But in a cute way, so, you know. Yeah, it, to adorably terrify and haunt your shrine. Yep. Got some interesting games today. I'm going to say, I think we've got, on the whole, three pretty good ones. I mean, okay, I should qualify that. I think we've got two really good ones and one that's fine. Yeah, probably better than its reputation suggests. I agree. I think I think you're right. And, uh, hey, we're pulling into a milestone today. Uh, by the end of this episode, we will have 200 games on our list. So uh, I'm glad we've got some good ones to, to mark that occasion with. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, you know, what, what's kind of funny here is that of all the games we've got here, we have two games that are Super Nintendo exclusives. We have one game that is not a Super Nintendo exclusive. And ironically, it is the game featuring Mario. <laughs> yeah, this was a weird time in the 90s uh, where Nintendo was strangely willing to make deals to put Mario in games that would not just appear on the Super Nintendo in certain contexts. Maybe the most famous one of those today. I don't know. I think it's the one most people played. Honestly, Probably, you know. In terms of internet fame, it's probably not quite as famous as, like, Hotel Mario. But, yeah, I, I would wager a lot of people played uh, the Mario edutainment game that we will be talking about today. Let's get into it. So, we are talking about Mario is Missing. Um, where is he? Well, we don't know. He's he's missing. Um, apparently, he's been captured by Bowser, who just, you know, frustrated with him always rescuing the princess, being like, hey, what if I just capture Mario this time instead? Clearly, I can capture the princess whenever I want to. So th this really seems like the way to go. Uh, makes you wonder why Bowser doesn't do this more often. Yeah, I gotta say, he's got some ambition in this one. He moved his castle to Antarctica. He stole a bunch of crap from all over the world he uh he, he imprisoned mario like it's uh it's a lot yeah bowser apparently just like uh borrowing some pages out of the carmen san diego playbook i mean i guess this whole game is sort of borrowing pages out of the carmen san diego playbook so uh yeah let's just get into it so this one comes to us from software toolworks and uh, i believe that i had mentioned back in episode 42 that if I hadn't already talked about software tool works in our chess master episode, then we talk about it when we got to the Mario educational games. Well, chess master, you guys, chess master happened all the way back in episode five before I was really like organizing my notes. Well, I don't remember what I talked about in episode five. What am I going to do? Go back and listen to episode five again? No, I'm not going to do that. So we're just going to so talk about software tool works as if I've never talked about them before, because I probably haven't. And realistically, if you've been listening through to the show, there's no chance you skipped from episode five to this one. So you might have forgotten about them, too. So, uh, you know, sit back and uh, and, and let, let the man give you some knowledge, will you? Yeah, I'm dropping some knowledge on you here. So, OK, so actually, I'm just going to make a quick disclaimer here. I apologize in advance for any names I mispronounce. The software Toolworks was founded by Walt Bilofsky in 1980. Before that, he'd attended Cornell U and MIT and worked for the Institute of Defense Analysis and the RAND Institute. And he also worked as a private consultant for a while. After assembling his own Heathkit H89 computer in 1979, he decided to develop some of his own software for it, which included a full screen editor and C compiler. Uh, now I'm going to go on a quick tangent here, uh, one of two. <laughs> so uh, the Heathkit... Uh, not to be confused with the Heathcliff, who is an orange cat, not to be confused with Garfield. Uh, the Heathkit uh, could be a story all its own. They are a U.S.-based electronics manufacturer that dates all the way back to the 1920s and are still around in some form today. 
Uh, unfortunately, that's probably way outside the scope of what we normally cover here. So uh, what's relevant to this story is that in the late 70s, the company that was known for things like oscilloscopes and radio kits got into the microcomputer business and started selling kits that consumers could assemble themselves. These included the H8, the H89, and the H11. Uh, Zenith at some point acquired the company and began selling H89s to consumers as fully assembled computers, rebranded as Z89s. Uh, but getting back to Belofsky, it was the H89 microcomputer that inspired him to write his new software and attempt to make programming in C more accessible on that computer for hobbyists. Uh, he even wrote to Heathkit himself and asked if they had any interest in the software, but they wrote back saying no. Heathkit was satisfied with the computer's operating system and basic programming language that came standard on the machines and weren't really interested in, in including a C compiler. So what do you do if the company that makes the computer doesn't want your software? Well, if you're Belofsky, you take out ads in hobbyist newsletters and just sell the software independently. He did just that, started getting a bunch of orders, and as his business grew, he decided to expand the scope of his products and got into the games industry in 1980, and by this point was officially uh, licensed as the software Toolworks as a, as a company. So the first game that he published was an air traffic control simulator created by Jim Gilligley. In addition to developing the first game that the software Toolworks would publish, Jim also introduced Bilivsky to the Colossal Cave Adventure, which had been created in 1975 by William Crother and is cited as the very first text adventure game ever created. And yes, it predates Zork by about two years. So uh, here is tangent number two. Uh, Crother worked on that original game between 1975 and 1977 while working at, R at the R&D company Bolt, Baranac, and Newman, or BBN. He programmed the game in Fortran and built it on a PDP-10 timesharing computer owned by the company. Crowther, an experienced spelunker, used his knowledge of Kentucky's Mammoth Cave system to make an interactive narrative for his daughters. Crowther was also a fan of D&D, and like many text adventures the game would inspire, CCA would accept regular English commands and parse them to advance the story, not unlike how a tabletop RPG with a human game master might play out. After finishing the game and going on vacation, other co-workers found it and began playing and enjoying the game themselves. Uh, one person in particular, Don Woods, really enjoyed the game but found himself frustrated when he encountered a scenario that seemed to have no win condition and left the player unable to advance. With Crowther's permission, Woods expanded the game, fixed some bugs, added a scoring system, and implemented more fantasy elements into the game. Now, because Crother's original source code was never distributed, Wood's version of the game is the more well-known version and the one that most ports would be based on. Uh, Crother's code was actually thought lost until being rediscovered in 2007. And with that, we'll get back to Software Toolworks and Jim Gilligley, who set out to make the first port of Colossal Cave System to a home computer with the blessings of Crother and Woods. In 1982, Gilligley was able to get the game running on the H89 using Bilofsky's C compiler. The 80s would see the company expand even more, and after several mergers and acquisitions and dozens of products going to market, the company uh, hit another milestone with Chessmaster 2000 in 1986, which got a SNES port, which we talked about uh, back in episode 5, like I said. In 1987, the company developed Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. Oh yeah! One of the most well-known typing tutor programs. Though not a real person, the character of Mavis Beacon was based on René L'Esperance, now, um, not the first time that the company had used a model as the likeness for one of its characters, the chess master was actually the first, but the first time that a black woman would adorn the cover. And this actually caused quite a stir and resulted in some retailers ordering less product when they discovered this fact in the late 80s. So, uh, yeah. hey, if you're one of those folks who thinks racism hasn't been a problem since the civil rights era, maybe do like any research at all. But uh, despite this, uh, Mavis Beacon was a huge hit. In fact, there's an anecdote in a uh, retro gamer magazine uh, where they interviewed uh, Bilofsky. And he said that uh, somebody at a trade show had actually said, how did you get Mavis Beacon? We've been trying to reach a deal with her for years. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. 
around this time, uh, EA had penned a deal with Software Toolworks to become their sole U.S. distributor. Unfortunately, part of this deal meant that all of their products had to be compatible on a wide range of formats. Uh, the work quickly became more than Software Toolworks could handle, and this is also around the time that the company began working on the Miracle Piano System, uh, hoping to replicate their typing tutorial success with piano tutorials. Um, now, you might already be able to figure out a few flaws in that plan, like how computers sort of come with keyboards standard and require them to operate. Uh, MIDI pianos weren't exactly standard computer equipment. The company ended up spending so much money on the uh, pianos that would be needed for the software to work that it nearly bankrupted them. I've always wondered about that with that thing. Like, it seems like it was kind of a losing proposition from the from the jump but i also wondered if maybe it was just so specialized that it was worth it for the scale they were operating at turns out not really yeah it wasn't a great idea and uh, it cost them a lot of money but luckily uh, by going public and raising uh, funds uh, that way the company was uh, able to survive and the company also acquired mindscape in 1990 software was working out better than hardware for this company, so they doubled down on that, scoring a licensing agreement with Nintendo, which may have actually been the result of that Mindscape merger, as Mindscape had already established a uh, relationship with N Nintendo around the, just before that merger. And that's how we get the game that we're talking about today, Mario is Missing. Uh, through this deal, they'd release Mario's Time Machine and Mario's Early Years. All of these educational Mario titles would end up on PCs and Mac computers, as well as Nintendo consoles. Uh, software Toolworks would continue to grow, and in 1994, they were acquired by Pearson PLC, a British media company. Um, and this would actually spell the end for Software Toolworks, as Pearson would rebrand the entire company under the Mindscape label. And uh, from there, it's all Mindscape story, which we talked about back in episode 42. So you can listen to that for the rest. Well, that's a great, uh, really exhaustive history. So thank you for that. And now, I guess all that's left is we need to talk about Mario is Missing, uh, a game that I played back in the day because it had Mario in it. I don't. Did you did you do that? Did you have the same experience or not? Yes. And I'll bet I had an experience that a lot of folks had, maybe uh, the same experience that you had. I think um, actually I think a neighbor rented this game and we played it with him. We fired up the game. We couldn't figure out what on earth we were supposed to do and pretty much turned it off almost immediately. <laughs> yes, that was my experience as well. Aside from the fact that I was the person who rented it, not the friend who, who rented it, that was my experience. I booted it up. I played it for like half an hour. Didn't manage to really do anything. Got bored and turned it off. And um, I think this game has some structural issues. Let's say that. Yeah, I think this game has got some really big problems in just general readability. Um, the game is incredibly opaque when you first fire it up. Uh -huh. Like, uh, It's not clear how you communicate with people. It's not clear what you're really supposed to be doing. I had to look online even just like while while I was playing this for the show to figure out how to get to other streets because yes. even that is not well explained. And I don't even think they explain it in the instruction manual, but you have to be standing on the sidewalk yeah. to go up and down streets. If you're just standing in the middle of the road, you'll just hear a, a car horn honk. I guess, you know, trying to teach kids, well, you got to be on the sidewalk. Luigi's just practicing proper pedestrian safety. Right. Uh, look, kids, like we let the automobile industry basically dictate how streets work and now you can't walk in the street anymore don't walk in the street or else you'll get turned into a ghost and then luigi luigi will have to catch you yep i guess let's talk about the structure of this game this is as we mentioned uh, an edutainment game uh, it is designed to take uh, a, a bit of light learning and wrap it wrap that medicine up in a candy coated mario pill or luigi pill in this case because mario is missing so you play as luigi his sprite looks like it was ripped directly out of uh super mario world the way this game functions uh you are sort of deposited in a city 
uh, a real world city somewhere on Earth. And you are asked to navigate a large map of basically identical looking streets uh, in order to find Koopas that are just walking around. You murder them. You truly do murder them, I think, because they do stuff like shatter into little bits when you jump on them. Right. Yeah. Uh, you do jump on them. It feels okay. There's no platforming to speak of in this game. You're just walking and then jumping on the Koopas. Uh, eventually, the Koopas will drop historical landmarks from whatever city you're in that have been stolen. Uh, you then go to these marked locations on the map where uh, the you, you were supposed to return these items. You tell the attendant at the place that you want to return the item. They give you a little pamphlet of information about the location that you need to read for important facts. Then you have to, for some reason, answer a short multiple-choice quiz about the thing you've just read. And if you get the questions right, you can return the item. Uh, once you return the items... Uh, which I believe there's three per city. Uh, you then need to go into a a completely buried menu in in the game start start menu. Navigate Yoshi along a thing that looks a lot like the Super Mario World world map, but it's it's actually a like a, a globe map of Earth to wherever you are, so that you can leave the level. Yeah, and I do really like that world map done in the style of the Super Mario World map. That's pretty cool. That is probably my favorite thing in the game, actually. There is supposed to be a little bit of learning about geography to that as well, because you're you're supposed to ask people on the street that are just sort of wandering around where you are, and they'll kind of give you little facts that are supposed to help you figure out where on the in the world this city is. That's basically it. Once you get Yoshi there, you can go to a specially marked blue pipe that will let you leave and go back to kind of the the hub area where you can then go to a new city, do all of this. Eventually, hopefully, you'll you'll rescue Mario. And that that's the game basically. Did I did I leave anything out? I guess the conceit here is that you're in you're starting in Antarctica where Bowser's castle is and each level of the castle is sort of dominated by one of the Koopa kids and every time you go through several portals that take you to different cities and clear those cities and return all the missing items. Once you've done that on a particular level, you will fight the Koopa Kid in a very easy uh, fight that I don't even think you can really lose, okay. where they'll run across the room and you have to jump on their heads three times to defeat them. So each each one of these cities takes maybe like 15 minutes if you're pretty focused to get through it. And they're all functionally identical. Like the only thing that really changes is the like layouts of the streets and the actual like facts you're learning but gameplay wise it's the same thing all the way through so i didn't find it compelling enough to play more than one of these and also if i didn't already have some knowledge of the structure of this and how it was supposed to work i would definitely find it extremely inscrutable yeah, it's it's really hard to get into because the game does not do a very good job of explaining itself. But once you've figured it all out, it's pretty simple to go through. Aside from the sort of opacity of the gameplay when you're first starting out, I think this game has some pretty big flaws. For one thing, you're doing a lot of different things, and, and I think that each of them has merit. Like, the first thing you're doing is you're trying to figure out what city that you're in. Uh, so that you can guide Yoshi to that city, and then you get to ride Yoshi once you've located it, um, which lets you move faster and also, as you mentioned, lets you um, get back into the pipe that'll take you back to Bowser's castle once you've returned all the items. The problem with this is that ideally what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to talk to people on the street to get hints about where you are. You can also just start going to the information booths of the different um, you know points of interest where there is... Uh, a historical artifact or, or some kind of, you know, important item that has been stolen, presumably by the Koopa Troopas, uh, that you need to get back. And by learning about the thing that you, that, that was stolen, uh, often that'll just give away your location without making you have to deduce anything. Like, it'll just say sometimes, oh, this is, you know, England's largest such and such. And then it's like, oh, well, I guess I know where I am now, you know, and, and really taking the guesswork out of it. So I think maybe those 
parts of the game should have been cordoned off a little bit. Like maybe you couldn't talk to the folks in the information booths until you got Yoshi there, perhaps. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, a thing that's really noticeable about this game is that none of the parts of it really seem particularly connected to each other. Like it feels like you're just doing several wholly unrelated tasks in order to complete each level. Like there's no, there's no flow of any, of any sort. Yeah. And, and to actually retrieve the items, all you have to do is just jump on the Koopa Troopas around the map, which don't fight back, can't damage you in any way or anything like that. You know, and it made me wonder, you know, like what if they had actually just had like a short little Mario level that you had to complete in order to get the things back. That might've been more fun. I don't know, but there, there's some decent ideas here, but I altogether, I, I think that all these ideas kind of flow into each other in ways that kind of break the game in some instances and just don't work all that well. Yeah, I mean, it's not very fun. It's very repetitive. And honestly, as far as something that's supposed to teach you about, you know, geography and history, uh, Carmen Sandiego already is doing more of that. Like it's already doing, doing this better. I think aside from the Mario association, um, there's not really much to, to recommend this game. Uh, one thing I do want to say that's a little bit off topic, but I think is really worth, you know, mentioning is that this game also has a, uh, a PC version and the PC version is wild because it is, uh, for one thing, uh, extremely high effort. Like there was clearly a lot of work put into it. And also, uh, pretty different from this. It's a point-and-click game where you kind of move Luigi around, but really kind of the same levels, but with, like, um, you know, clicking on on different, like, arrow directions on, like, a uh, an interface that's on screen. It has completely redrawn sprites that look hideous. Uh, they're very cartoony, and, like, Yoshi is a absolute nightmare in that thing. He looks like a big green hot dog. It also has voice acting, like full voice acting and it's all really charming and extremely amateurish. So I would say don't play this game and definitely don't play the PC version, but please look at footage of that uh, because yeah, it's, it's really something. Now is the PC version of Luigi, is that where the whole Ouija meme comes from? I don't know, maybe, but, but yeah, this version uh, direct controls, you know, the, the, the Super Nintendo version, direct controls, sprites look like they were completely just pulled right out of an actual Mario game, uh, which clashes really badly with the awful looking like townspeople sprites that are just wandering around the map. They're both really strange games, but just in, in different ways. They don't clash with the, uh, attendant in every single information booth, though, who for some reason is modeled like Princess Peach from Super Mario World. She's like a really tall Princess Peach. In a blue dress. I don't... In a blue dress, yeah. I don't know why and, that is. She also like says, you know, like... Like, it's just like it says on the sign, bub. So I'm like picturing Princess Peach going like, yeah, it's like it says on the sign there, bub. The thing got stolen, so we're closed. Yep, that's like, her. Everybody all over the world looks like Princess Peach and talks in a Brooklyn accent. Yeah, that's it. I do want to mention it's really weird that you go all over the world. And like the first town that you go to, uh, the, the, the first one is San Francisco. So like, you know, you got like a kid in like a baseball cap. You got an old scientist man. You got a lady cop. These people look like they could believably be there. But then the next one you go to is like in like Kenya and it's the same people. Like it's the same, just all like these random white people. And that's the same. It's the same people everywhere. So it's really weird. It's all very strange. Um, I will say, you know, like a lot of the sprites look like they were ripped out of Super Mario World. The physics are off, though, a lot. They try to replicate the music, and I don't think they do it very well, but they do add sort of like a different twist to the Super Mario World theme based on whatever city you're in, which I do think is kind of cool. Just the way it's all kind of assembled feels a little bit, a little bit lazy. Like, like it was a little bit like, hey, Carmen Sandiego's popular, Mario's popular, let's just combine the two and put something out there. Yep. Yeah, it does feel like that. So, yeah, um, 
I don't know. That's the game. I don't really have much else to say about it. But uh, yeah, did did you have anything you wanted to to mention before we go to the list? No, I think we can just uh, I think we can just go to that list. All right. So my first question here: Where on the list is Carmen Sandiego? Uh, that is a good question. Let me just. Uh, so where in time is Carmen Sandiego? Is it number eighty three? And I would definitely say this goes below that. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Cause yeah, I would go down from there. This isn't a broken game. Like it's not, you know, there's nothing exactly wrong with this aside from just the really obtuse structure, but it's not really, you wouldn't really call this good in any way aside from just like novelty. Yeah. I'm trying to find like a floor for it. I keep going a little bit lower and lower here. Um, you know, okay. I would, I would say maybe D force is a good floor for this. I, I definitely wouldn't, put this below d force i would say what do you think about that yeah okay that's fair i think i I don't think it's worse than that so that that puts our floor at 131 okay you know you know we got super adventure island right above that this might be a good comparison because i feel like super adventure island is also like you know maybe i I don't want to say tedious but like it's a game that could have been a lot more given what had been added to the series in its nes incarnations and like stripping all that stuff out of it for this super NES game. You know, I would say I would go up a little bit from there even actually, and say, I do think this is probably better than F1 ROC. Okay. I think I'd rather, I'd rather spend more time with Mario is missing than F1 ROC. Yeah. Um, Doomsday warrior. That was the one with the, the Dizzin lizard, right? It sure is. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say this, like what this is trying to be, what Mario is missing is trying to be, um, is better than or accomplishes it better than doomsday warrior accomplishes being a fighting game. That's probably true. Doomsday warrior is very stiff and um, it does the thing that I, I don't ultimately really love in fighting games where it, it basically has like almost half of the, or, or like a third of the roster is like unplayable bosses. Yeah. So um, yeah. Okay. We can go up from there. I don't remember Super Strike Eagle <laughs> at all. I don't remember Street Combat either, which is remarkable because those are both games from 1993. So we couldn't have played them that long. Was, was Street Combat the fighting game with like the the Hulk Hogan looking guy um, whose oh, name escapes me now? But if I look on my yeah. website, I'll see it there. I, I think so. Yeah. Doomsday Warrior feels like that, like you could just blow on that game and it would fall apart. Whereas like Street Combat at least feels like a semi-competently assembled fighter. Yeah. Well, given that we don't remember Super Strike Eagle, that can't really be a great sign for Super Strike Eagle. Nah, I mean, I I could put this above or below Street Combat. I would not put this above Extra Innings at 124. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Let's go ahead and put this right above street combat because i think we can both agree that extra innings is definitely a game that is not as that 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 is is better than mario is okay so mario is missing will be our new 125 yeah new 125 mario is missing surely the lowest scoring game starring mario we are gonna play I would assume so. Well, we still got Mario's time machine at some point. Ooh, that's a good point. Um, okay. Maybe the second lowest scoring game that Mario is going to be starring in, uh, or not starring in. Yeah. There's also like those, those three preschool Mario games, which I have no idea how those play. We got some more off brand Mario coming. So, uh, look forward to that folks. But, uh, yeah, uh, for now, I feel pretty comfortable with Mario is missing in, in this place on the list. All right. Well, let's. Uh, well, that was a lot of time we've just spent talking about Mario is missing. <laughs> let's move on to uh, a game that uh, I think we can both agree is a lot better than Mario is missing, but which strangely we're we just cannot cannot conceivably have as much to say about. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about Run Saber. Yeah, let's run those sabers. So Run Saber, this game comes to us from publisher Atlas and developer Horisoft. Uh, I'm almost certain we've talked about Atlas before, and if we haven't, I mean, like, it's Atlas. We're we're almost certainly going to talk about them. And you guys, I already talked so long about Software Toolworks, okay? What? 
what more do you guys want from me? All right. Let the man rest. Um, I will talk about Horisoft, though, because um, their their history is kind of mercifully short. Uh, they developed this game, which came out in the U.S. and Europe, but oddly enough, not Japan. Uh, the Japan release was canceled. That's really surprising because it is, it is a, a very Japanese feeling game. Like I think it would have done just fine there, but I don't know. Uh, they also made a, cu- uh, a puzzle game called Pieces that only came out in Japan. They also made a fishing game Winning Lure, Mahjong game YY Sanin Uchi Mahjong, and mini battle game Uchanoma Battle. All of those came out on the PlayStation. I'm pretty sure all of those uh, exclusively in Japan. Hori Soft, are they related to like the peripheral manufacturer Hori, like the, the folks that make like fight sticks and stuff? I am fairly certain that they are. Uh-huh. While their gameography is incredibly short, software seems to be a pretty small blip on the company's overall radars. Their primary claim to fame would be in manufacturing peripherals. Uh, they were founded in 1970 in Kanagawa, Japan, making equipment originally for TV sets and radios, and they branched out into the video game peripheral market in 1985, making accessories for the Famicom in Japan, and that would pretty much be their bread and butter from that point forward. Uh, they've released a lot of controllers and accessories for a wide variety of consoles, even having some of their equipment officially licensed by the console manufacturers themselves. Uh, for example, I believe the uh, that uh, Sega released some of Hori's Genesis controllers under their own brand name. And like you said, they do a lot in the world of uh, fighting sticks and things like that. If this is not the same company, if Horisoft is not a division of Hori Electronics, then I am making the same mistake that uh, Moby Games has made because the logo that they have for the Horisoft that links from Runsaber is the same logo that appears on the company's website today. So, so yeah, I haven't found any other confirmation that they are connected, but I, I have to think that they're the same company or, or just, you know, divisions within the same company. It's strange, though, because even though their stint in game development was short. Like run saber is very good. It is very good. Um, it does not seem like a kind of tossed off thing where a company was just trying to like get into this because it was an extra sideline to make some money. Like there's, there's some real, uh, real craft on display here. Yeah. And so I I think uh, we both had the same idea. We were looking through the credits of this game to see if, there was any connection to like a shadow development team that might've been contracted to actually put in the work for this or, you know, yeah. did any of these people come from, you know, really prominent backgrounds, but a lot of the credits in this game, at least according to Moby games have gameographies that are about as short as Horisoft itself with a few outliers. Uh, programmer Takeshi Sakamoto has credits on several games in the fantasy star series and artist Suzumu Tamizawa is credited for graphics in several games games in Nintendo's Mario and Luigi series. But yeah, there's nothing that seems to link them together, um, you know, in any sort of way other than this game. Because I was assuming this might end up being Ukiyote situation where it was like a bunch of veterans from like Konami or Capcom or something, all, all sort of striking out on their own to, to form their own development team. And that doesn't seem to be the case, but whoever they are, the folks who made this definitely knew what they were doing and is this was a, a really neat find because i feel like you don't really see people talking about run saber that much and they probably should because it's good i guess we'll talk about the game now so this is a 2d platformer uh where you're walking running jumping slashing going all over the place really and uh you can play this uh two-player co-op which is awesome you've got two protagonists a man and a woman who i think might have names this game is a little bit light on story at least within the game itself they do have names i can't remember what they are but if you look at the the wikipedia page for this game it does list names for those characters it has a cool kind of evocative opening animation sequence here that shows like the earth being uh, everyone on earth being like mutated we, we see the planet and then it goes sepia so you, you never want to see that yeah luckily there are these two cool like ninja people uh one of them uh, there's a guy who kind of looks like Ryu from Street Fighter and a lady who looks like she is like a cool like bubblegum crisis sort of 80s punk rock android lady. Yeah, you can choose either one or you can play both of them together in co-op. They go through 
uh, a series of levels that are, take place all around the world, fighting fighting these these really s- genuinely strange looking monsters and and robots and things. This is a fascinating game. This is a lot like uh, if you. Um, if you are familiar with the Capcom game Strider, either the the arcade version or the Sega Genesis port, this game is is very very much in the Strider uh, mold of action of action platformer. Yeah, and when I was reading through some old magazines um, regarding this game, a lot of folks were comparing it to Strider back in the day. I mean, it's kind of inevitable. It plays really similarly. Like, you know, this is a platform game, but it's not really a platform game where you ever have to worry about falling into a pit. Uh, your your character will cling to whatever surface they're near, whether that's the ceiling or, you know, the wall or, or what have you. Uh, and you have, like, a couple of different um, attacks. You have, like, a slash and a kind of, like, slide that can also damage enemies. And uh, you also just have a, like, a... a you know, Metroid style screw attack when you jump forward and um, it all feels really good. Uh, you know, it's uh, there, there's no momentum or anything like you only move when you press the button. So this is very like precise, but there's no um, uh, there, there, this is not a game where the challenge comes from the platforming, but it all feels very good. These characters, even with, you know, a pretty limited amount of commands have pretty robust arsenals because your attack button not only does it slash not only do you use it i I think in in combination with um you know pressing jump and uh a direction on the d-pad to do the the screw attack like uh, jump but you also can use it like if you're falling you can hold it down to do like a, a diving kick which you can angle or just have go straight down which is really neat these characters have a lot of things they can do and you don't have to remember a lot of button inputs to do them, which I really enjoy because, um, yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later for me, but uh, as simple as you can keep it, the better. And and I really like the simplicity of this game. I This game let me feel like I was a complete badass while not expecting me to do really complicated button inputs or remember what, what buttons map to what. The other thing about this game that is very Strider-ish is that it is very focused on like big kind of set piece boss fights uh, with unique enemies. So so you will have, have areas where you're going through like a level and fighting just like random goons. But, um, you know, multiple times per level, it will it will stop for a, a fight with something that's always really interesting. Like the first level alone has got a big green mutant guy that starts out like trapped in a tube wandering around trying to hit you and then he breaks out of it and he gets like a totally different move set and then there's like a wall with these weird kind of like mermaid things kind of oozing out of it and then at the end of the level you jump on board like a harrier jet that has monsters kind of oozing out of it and uh, it kind of like turns around, you know, in the sky. You have to like hang on to the top of it as it goes upside down. And like the whole game has like lots of stuff like that. It's very cool. Yeah, that jet boss fight is so cool. Like that kind of blew my mind when I first saw it. Like just the way that they use that. Yeah, the the jet's all turning. So you're you're hanging from the bottom of it one moment and then you're fighting on top of it the next. Um, and because, you know, your characters just cling to you know, ceilings and walls and things like that. I didn't have to think too much about like maintaining a grip on it. I could just focus on the fighting, um, which again, just really, really cool. Like giving you this really awesome set piece to, to be fighting on um, and, and doing all these cool tricks. It just makes you feel like you're in just a bonkers uh, uh, action movie. The vibe this thing has is like a tokusatsu series, like a common writer or something. Almost like the, the the enemies often have like a very like guy in suit sort of feel like they're like a dude in like a monster costume. And it's very cool, very fun. And the stuff you do, it always feels really good and really uh like you're just doing doing cool action movie stuff constantly. Well, a lot of the monsters, like you said, do look like guys in suits. Some of the rest of them, like, you know, the, the things mutating out of the walls and the plane itself, which I was sort of reading as like 
the wall and the plane were made out of like a living metal that were mutating into monsters. Um, those are like really cool looking, really detailed, um, almost like have like a, a, a almost a gruesome kind of look to them. Yeah, there's a very like kind of body horror feel to a lot of it as well. What's kind of funny about that, too, is that uh, in the second level, there is a, a boss fight at the end where you're fighting like this this giant skeletal woman um, that's very freaky. And she actually exists because of a, a, a minor act of censorship. Apparently, that was just meant to be a giant lady. And Nintendo was like, uh, I don't know if we like the idea of you just smacking around a lady. And so they said, OK, what if she's a skeleton instead? And they're like, that's fine. That's really funny because that's such a cool looking boss the way it's done. Yeah, I don't think it would have been as cool the original way. I because I, I, I saw a screenshot of it in an old magazine where they talked about that. And uh, huh. yeah, it, um, I, th- I think the result was like way freakier and way cooler. That's really interesting, actually. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, Run Saber, though, uh, you probably haven't played it, and you probably should, because it's very cool. Yeah, especially if you can play this one two-player. Um, I, I think I would have loved this game back in the day, especially with the ability to play it two-player co-op. Um, you can pump down the difficulty and pump up the number of lives that you've got to make the game a little bit easier if you need, to make it you know a much breezier experience. That's what I did, and I got like a good chunk of the way through this thing. Yeah. So you know you can kind of make it as easy or as difficult as you want it to be. And yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it, it's got a real great look to it. You know, we've talked a lot about hidden gems and things being close to hidden gems. I think this is firmly in hidden gem territory. This is a, an amazing game. A lot of fun, really good looking, uh, great for, for to, to play with friends. It's just an all-around banger, and it's one that I just never hear people talking about a lot. I don't have anything else to say about it other than that this game is cool. Yeah, I, I think that's all I got, too, and I think uh, we're probably going to be looking pretty high for this one. Yeah. So what do you think the, the game, this the, the, the sort of like hidden gem status and the kind of like extremely impressive, like cinematic nature this brings to mind is uh cybernator. How do you feel about that as a, a starting point to, to compare? I think this one is just easier to get into initially than cybernator. And, and I, I think, think the, that's true. The fact that you can play it with a friend makes it even more so probably like visually technologically, it's not quite as impressive as cybernator, but I do think it's, it's, more playable and and or it's it's easier to get into and I do really like the co-op nature of it. So yeah, uh, so you, we're we're talking about looking looking up from Cybernator, which is our number fourteen game right now. Ooh, could we be looking at a top ten contender here? You know, possibly. I have a little bit of trouble when I get to Act Razor because I think that even though I really like all the stuff that that Run Saber does. I just think the the combination of the two game types in Actraiser is so clever that I that that really kind of is impressive to me. But you know, um, I, I you know what though the thing is that in about in a few minutes I'm going to be making a case for another game that is not as as creative as Actraiser uh, to go pretty high on this list too. So, you know, I, I am very willing to defer to you uh, if you think that that we should we should be looking at the top 10 here. Like, let's talk about that. I am tempted to make this our new number nine and put it above out of this world. Um, OK, I as much as I am impressed with out of this world as a cinematic gaming experience and, and how well they converted. Like, I, I think the big thing for me was like I was not expecting this game to work as well on the Super NES as it did. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but. This is a game made for the SNES. Um, it is, yeah. Works very well on it, and there's just so much. Here. Like, it feels like this game has a lot of content. You know, like it. You know, it, yeah. You got a good number of worlds here. You know, it, it's not going to be. You know, like, oh hey, this isn't like a. a you know, the, the kind of time sink that, like, say, a Final Fantasy two might be. But I probably played through like at least four different stages, and I'm I'm sure I. I Maybe halfway through, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, I know I, I finally ran into like some other character that I believe is kind of crucial to the plot. He's like the the other Run Saber character, but he's the bad guy. Oh right, because there's there's three of them, and one of them went yeah. bad, and the other two are right. Yeah, yeah. So I I only encountered him once, I think. So uh, so I I have a feeling that like I still had a good chunk of game to go, but um, 
I don't know. I yeah. I think I would play this again before I would play Out of This World again. You know, I, I think that's probably fair. Um, I think I probably would too. And I, and the other thing is that Out of This World, if I want to play that again, I probably am not going to play the Super Nintendo version. So, so yeah, okay. Uh, you know what? I can go with that. Um, I really like Run Saber. I think it's really good at everything it does. And um, I like that it's co-op. So, yeah, what do you say? New New number nine game run saber yeah do we want to have a conversation about final fantasy 2 or is that just like not even i don't i don't think okay. so personally like that's that feels to me like where it stops okay i am fine uh, with that you know i am absolutely fine with that i just wanted to make sure that you know we we, we at least broached the topic of what was yeah. above it before we we just said okay mm-hmm. um legit yeah no totally all right so congratulations run saber cracking the top 10 yeah here on our on our episode getting us into uh you know our 200th game yeah our 200th Um, game um which uh let's let's talk about it uh let's talk about pocky and rocky let's talk about pocky and rocky so uh yeah, Pocky and Rocky, I do not have as much um, to go into with the history of this one. This was published and developed by Natsume, and I think we will talk about them another day when we haven't already covered so many other companies <laughs> in a kind of long format. Um, we'll we'll probably get to Natsume with uh, either Pocky and Rocky 2 or Harvest Moon. So There's sure going to be a few really good uh, chances to talk about Natsume uh, at some point in the future. So yeah, uh, I think let's... Uh, Let's let's just give kind of the briefest briefest of of history for the game, I guess. So Pocky and Rocky is a sequel to uh, an arcade shooter from 1986 uh, published by Taito called Kiki Kai Kai, which uh, translates to Mysterious Ghost World. And in it, uh, you you control, uh, you know, much like in the game we're going to be talking about today, you control a uh, a Shinto shrine maiden named Sayo-chan who... It has to um, defeat a bunch of yokai that have gone out of control. This game is is you know an almost uh, almost a decade later uh, made sequel uh, that teams up Sayochan uh, with uh, who is is renamed to Pocky in the uh, the 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 Western release with a little, cute little Tanuki named Rocky. They have to um, help put those yokai back in their place again. Which, uh, you know, similar setup to the the previous game, but this uh, obviously made for much more at the time modern hardware, and uh, it does it does allow for two player co op, and this is, this is Pocky and Rocky, which uh, I just think is delightful personally. Um, you know, this is a, a top down shooter, but not like a auto scrolling shooter. Um, you know, basically this is. Um, Sort sort of a uh, what what would you what would you call this? I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's almost got like the the trappings of a twin stick shooter where you're kind of free to move about, though it's not one of those. Um, and and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's not like a an auto scroller. It's not a ratchet scroller. You are free to kind of move about the levels. Um, yeah, you can go backward and forward. And yeah, kind of actually in a way that's a bit similar to Run Saber, which we just talked about. This game is full of set pieces. Uh, you know, this is a game with really kind of bright, colorful, cartoony graphics. And each level presents kind of several different scenarios. You get kind of a, a almost like ghouls and ghosts style uh, world map between between levels that show kind of where you are in your progress to get to the uh, the castle where the big bad guy is who turned all the yokai evil uh, to fight him and um, yeah each level you know it contains some some kind of different uh, different stuff the the second level has a a, le- a sequence where you're riding uh, on a raft down a river the third level I believe is a, a cool graveyard. That has, um, you know, a, a bunch of, of ghosts and, you know, zombies and things that pop up out of the ground. There's a, a level that has these kind of big 
mountain things that kind of slam together and impede your progress. So you have to maneuver around those. So yeah, this game has like six levels, but each one is, is like extremely, uh, extremely bespoke, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. This game has got a lot of personality. It, um, like Legend of the Mystical Ninja is, you know, unapologetically Japanese. And, and I, yeah, do... this is very, very similar. I feel like in, in look and tone to, uh, Legend of the Mystical Ninja. Yeah, although it also deals with, you know, like Japanese demons and, and Oni and things like that that have a much more cute appearance to them than, you know, their maybe Western equivalents. You know, this is almost like a good Halloween game, uh, you know, for, for younger kids uh, who, you know, or, or just somebody who's just not in the mood to be really, really scared right now, but still wants to get into the Halloween spirit like, uh, yeah. like probably a lot of us these days. Oh, totally. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, about this game that's incredibly charming. It's very colorful. There's um, there's some cool cutscenes in between all the levels that kind of tell the story. You know, it's it's a fun story. You know, you've got yeah. the, the Tanuki Rocky, who's who's a like a, a good oni or a good um, what do they call him? Yokai. Yokai. Sorry. Um, you know, and, and he's like, hey, all the other yokai or in demons or oni or whatever you want to call them are, are going bad and we need to fix them. So, you know, they're going through. You beat like the first boss and, and he comes to his senses and now he's all like, oh, where am I? I? I almost thought for a second, like, oh, do I get to play as him now? But uh, no, unfortunately, you only get Pocky and Rocky, which, which is fine. They're great characters. But uh, this all gets into like my big issue with the game, which is. This feels like it should have been just a straight-up twin-stick shooter in the same vein as, like, a Smash TV. Um, you play the game by pointing your character in a direction with the D-pad and then um, hitting one of the, the buttons to fire your your either your um, holy seals or whatever they are that, that, yeah, that Pocky has, yeah. or your raccoon leaves is Rocky. You've got a few other attacks, too. Like, you've got a reflecting attack that's good for projectiles if you can, you know, reflect them in time. You've got a, uh, a like a dive move that can help you, you know, get across the screen really fast. I didn't find either of those um, super useful, and I would have much rather just had all four of the face buttons mapped to throwing your projectile in a different direction. Because I found it really, really difficult to aim my projectiles, you know, the way that I would want to, because I always had to be facing the direction that I wanted to shoot. And it just, it, it didn't work for me. I know that this is a really beloved game, and I do think there's a, lo a, a lot to love about it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to. Part of that is that I am not a fan of shmups in general. Um, so I, you know, hey, take whatever I say with a grain of salt if you like those games. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it, it didn't really click for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had kind of a different reaction to the controls. Definitely. Um, I liked the dive move particularly a lot. Like, I feel like that to me made, uh, really, really kind of made this all come together. Cause, uh, you know, basically the dive, um, it will take you uh, a long way across the screen. It's, it's a thing that I think is, is sort of designed to help you, get yourself out of an enemy's like danger zone. So a, lot, a part of this becomes about kind of reading enemy patterns. And I will say like, you know, that this game is uh, extremely learnable, I guess is what I would say. Like there's, there's not a lot that's like unpredictable about what happens in this game. So like you can, you can really kind of go through a level, die a few times and then come back at it. And uh, you know, just kind of blaze through it once you know, kind of, how to to avoid the enemies and you know where you should be standing um you know there's there's a lot of power-ups as well that kind of give you like a wider spread of of uh attacks or you know like a little invincibility and one thing i did really appreciate about this is that even though there are there is that kind of like cumulative effect to having all the power-ups that goes away uh when you when you die I never felt nearly as like on the back foot when that happened as I do in like a Gradius game or something. Like I think that even with the, you know, the basic set of, of attacks that the game gives you, it's still possible to like make progress and build yourself back up. So you're never you're never just like screwed if if you die midway through a level, which I, I appreciated. I can see what you're saying about the twin stick. I think that would be an interesting version of this game, but I also don't know that I feel like 
looking at the game for like, well, I wish it had just done this this completely different thing that it wasn't trying to do. Maybe like I didn't spend enough time with it, but like when I think of like this sort of top down, um, you know, kind of shooting gameplay. Um, what I tend to go to is like the NES game Gremlins 2, the new batch. Okay, yeah. Um, which I think played a lot like that. And I think that the challenge of that game was pretty well suited to, you know, like there, there would only be a few things on the screen. There would be a ton of enemies on the screen in, in some cases when I played this game. And I and that's where I really started feeling like I feel like I should be able to shoot in any direction without having to turn into that direction. Well, and I think I, I also don't think you're you're uh, well, the, the other thing I was going to say is I, I do feel like I experienced the same thing that you did in, in, in some cases. Like, I don't think you're wrong. Um, like particularly that, uh, raft sequence in level two that I was talking about before. Um, it has a whole bunch of enemies that appear at odd angles and it, it is actually kind of hard to, to angle your shots, you know, at like a diagonal in this game, which, you know, definitely got me into some real trouble there. So, like, yeah, you know, there are definitely ways in which I think a, mo- a modern uh, game would, would you know, Im- do something different with this um, that I, I think would be interesting. And I am curious because a lot of the team that made this game is currently working on a new Pocky and Rocky game uh, that I'm curious to see what that ends up being like, um, whether it's just completely, you know, retro style and, and just exactly like you know, uh, th- this game or, uh, you know, if, if they've, they've tried to kind of explore any other, other ideas there. So, okay. So I wonder if we, we could reach a compromise here. Like what if we, we mapped all the buttons to attacking in a specific direction, like I was saying, but you could still dive by like double tapping the D pad in a direction. I mean, that would be good. Would, you I, think that would work? I think that would work. I think that would be, um, that would be a good alternate control scheme for this. And I, I, I do want to emphasize, I think this control scheme is very learnable. Like, I think you can get used to it and, and, but, but I, I do think that having more options, you know, just to, to get over some of that awkwardness probably wouldn't hurt, but what you're describing would be good. Yeah. In general, like, honestly, I, uh, you know, I came away from this thinking this is, this is really kind of, um you know, an all-time great Super Nintendo game. Like, I think I would say probably this ranks up there with the very best shooters we've played on the system. I think a lot of that has to do with the the charm and personality. Every level has almost entirely different sets of enemies that do different things. But also, I, I do think this is a really fun game. I think this is, you know, uh, a, really, a really good execution of this idea that um, I, I want to say also runs really well. Like there's only a few places where there's like extreme slowdown in this game, which given what some of the other shooters we've played have been like is pretty impressive. I liked this game a whole lot personally. Yeah. And maybe this like goes to like, maybe I'm just playing the game wrong to some extent. I don't know, but I experienced a lot of slowdown because there were times when I'm like, okay, the enemies are not despawn or are not, you know, stopping like they keep spawning in. So I think I just need to run past this area and then just, <laughs> just having like a ton of enemies on the screen and experiencing some massive slowdown. I'm not wrong. Like the, the there are parts where enemies don't stop spawning in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think no, no, I, I think there are definitely parts of this game that I I learned. I think if you were chasing score, you would want to stick around and, and you know, wipe out more of them. But I think there are parts of this game that are pretty much designed for you to kind of treat the enemies like an obstacle course and, and just sort of try to get through them in, in, you know, kind of the best way possible. That's probably a good point that there are instances where like, you're going to put this game under too much load and it's going to slow down. So yeah, that's fair. And I I don't want to discount any of the stuff you're saying about the game. I think this is a very, very valid reaction to it. And it's a pretty hard game. I didn't make it that far in this, but I feel like I, I could, like, I feel like I could get pretty used to this game and like learn its, you know, methodologies for how it like lays out the levels and stuff. But, you know, also, uh, I think you could, you could play this game for like 20 minutes, be like, yeah, this isn't really working for me. And, uh, and then walk away. And that, that would be understandable as well. Yeah. And and again, you know, I will, you know, 
put forth the caveats that I am not a fan of shmups. Once you start implementing, you know, like, hey, there's there's more than two attacks that you need to remember on these face buttons. My primitive brain just cannot handle that, which is kind of what I was alluding to when we were talking about Run Saber earlier. Uh-huh. And um, also, this game would probably be legitimately more fun even for me if I had someone else to play with. So, Right. I think this would be really good in co-op. So, yeah, you can kind of go back and forth on this uh, for, for a while. But, yeah, I, I think in general, I'm more of a fan of this kind of game, which which kind of helped me kind of get into it more. And I also just think, um, uh, you know, I just like what it's doing so much. I, I would say for me personally, this this feels like the best shooter we've played on the system, but uh, I am, I am very willing to listen to, to counter arguments to that. Well, okay. So, so on that note, if we look over at the list right now, our, our top rated shooter is space Megaforce, which is at number 11. Um, we've got, you know, below that, we've got like UN squadron at 13. Um, well, I guess, you know, yeah, let's start with Space Megaforce at 11. Like, would you put this above Space Megaforce? I think I would. Um, and I would put it above, uh, for me personally, I'd put it above Space Megaforce, both because uh, I just think it's doing such a good job of, you know, I think graphically, sound-wise, uh, the overall kind of, you know, pacing of the game, I think is is so confident that I think it, it kind of becomes like a pretty sort of singular thing. But also because I think that it is, uh, you know, a slightly unique type of game for the Super Nintendo. Like it's it's, you know, it, we did struggle a bit to compare it to other shooters successfully. Uh, so whereas Space Megaforce is a very good game of a type that we have like oodles of examples of on on the system. So. Um, that, that to me pushes it above just, just because of its uniqueness. But, uh, I, I think that they're honestly pretty similar in terms of like quality and polish levels. So, so yeah, you know, they're, they're, you know, uh, what, what, what do you think? I mean, I think that uh, if I had to guess, I, I would assume that probably the fact that space Megaforce is, is like an auto scrolling shooter probably helps with some of the control issues, right? Yeah, it it does. Um, you know, and the, the the variety of power-ups and and the really cool visual effects, you know, really put Space Megaforce up there for me. But, you know, I mean, Space Megaforce doesn't have co-op. Um, you know, it doesn't have the the charming story of Pocky and Rocky. Well, I mean, it might, but they took the story out of this uh, of of oh, the right. American <laughs> yeah, version. Yeah. So, uh, who can say, but not that it really suffers for it, which is which is also worth noting. So yeah, um, I, you know, I would be really happy, honestly, uh, with putting it right above or below Space Megaforce. Okay, I could, you know, I, I I could deal with that. I um, I I could I could even hear an argument for it going above Out of This World, but I don't think I would put it above Run Saber. Okay, uh, if you feel good with that, um, thank you for, you know, uh you know, uh, acceding to, to kind of my feelings about Pocky and Rocky. And, uh, yeah, cause, I mean, I, I know I am probably in the minority on that. Like I know, like probably most people are, are going to side more with you on this than, than with me because this is just not my genre. So, you know, and, and I, and I, I, you know, I understand that. So, so is this going to be new number 11 or, or did you want to make the argument that this goes above out of this world as well? I'm, pretty comfortable with it being number 11 so yeah let's because because the yeah like the one thing that i will uh yeah yeah the 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 thing i came away from pocky and rocky thinking is like yeah i liked this more than any other shooters on on the system so so you know that's uh that's where we're at with it all right so congratulations pocky and rocky our new number 11 wow two two games cracking the top 15 today yeah, uh, that's an incredible thing. I don't think we really predicted that. I think we hoped going into this, we decided to make Pocky and Rocky our 200th game we would put on the list wherever it ended up going, just because it is a pretty, uh, pretty beloved game. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that it ended up being such a good game, but I was not expecting Ren Saber anywhere in this. Like I, I did not have any, uh, 
and, and any assumptions about that going in. I'm really pleased that we found something so cool this this deep in the library. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just didn't know what to expect from Run Saber because I had no idea what it was until we played it for the show. Me so. either. So right. and uh, and there you go. And with that. We've got 200 games on this list, and um, folks, we're going to be doing another special in the, in the next episode where uh, we're going to be talking with some folks. We've already got a lot of that stuff already recorded and in the can. Yeah, yeah. Wow, look at that. 200 games. I, Incredible. I, I didn't know, you know, when we first started this, I, you know, I'm not even sure I could have fathomed, you know, what, what a 200 deep list looked like you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying yeah i know it's incredible uh but yeah here it is and honestly it's uh it's interesting like you know i think a lot of the games that we we would have expected are pretty high on the list but also um there's so much stuff on here that i either had no opinion about or just had never heard of before we started before we started playing the games for this show so i i think the list is is uh, looking good. I think it's really cool. And, um, you know, I feel good about uh, about where everything is on it at this point, for the most part. So almost halfway done with 1993. And then uh, after that, the we got 94, 95, which I think are going to be even longer. They <laughs> so. sure are. There's there's you know, those are those are really kind of uh, some of the the headiest days ahead of us for, for the Super Nintendo. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, I am really glad, you know, because it does feel like we've we've hit a lot of mediocre stuff lately that uh, that this episode going into our 200 game special um, had two absolutely. real bangers on it. I'm, I'm yeah, really happy about that. Uh, I think that's great. All right. Well, with that, I guess uh, we are going to call it good for today. We will see you for uh, our 200 game special. So thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Yep. Until then, I'm Emmy Zero. I'm Steampunk Link. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoax.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Yep, I am comfortable with Mario is missing, and if he's being played by Chris Pratt, he can stay missing for all I care. Ooh, yeah, weird, weird bad casting, folks. <laughs> uh, you you know that. You know all about yeah. that. You've been on the internet. So, yeah, but uh, oh, that movie's going to be a weird ride for sure. Um, I, I won't know because I'm not going to see it. <laughs> <laughs>